All right. Hey, that was joy-filled and uh, warm. Um, it's fun to see community connectedness and people meeting each other. And uh, so I love City Life Church. Um, we're going to move into our scripture reading time and the sermon. There's something before that that I want to share. There's a there's a cop. There's copies of this in the back. It's a letter. It also went out by email, I think, like last night. So I know a lot of you have read it, and some of you talked to me about it. It's um, it's from me. It's about my journey with City Life Church, and I thought I would just read a little bit of it here because um, you know so, so there's sort of that always that dynamic of things that arrive digitally and things that arrive in person, and I think you kind of got to do the, do things in both places but not ad nauseum. So this is a long letter. I won't read all of it, but there's copies in the back, about 15, if, uh, if you didn't get a chance to get this by email. Um, so let me just uh, stick to what I have here, and then, um, and then we'll move forward. So, so a little ways into the letter, I just start describing a little bit about my journey and some of the things I've been dealing with in the last like, you know, year and a quarter. I have to be honest, it's no cakewalk to be a pastor of launching a church. I'm glad to have had so many of you to have helped uh, make it happen. But truthfully, sometimes I imagine warning my younger self against getting into this. In late February 2017, I hit a wall. Somehow all the burden carrying added up to feeling over it. I wasn't sure what this meant. I was honest with some of you, particularly the leadership team, and I began a journey of exploring the causes and solutions. I listened for God's voice in my life and for clues of the condition of my heart. I entered into monthly appointments for both spiritual direction and psychotherapy, and I invited the preaching collective to give me a few more Sundays off than usual. I was loving being a pastor and preaching, but something about carrying the torch of city life needed to change. I have begun calling it ministry fatigue. This is combined with, as I read recently in an article, a period of having deep transformational rumblings. In some ways, I'm delighted that this has been happening amidst a seemingly healthy season of City Life Church. It's clarifying. I'm in no way discouraged or frustrated with the church, its people, or its progress. I've gone through seasons of that, but thankfully not now. It's more about how I've inwardly carried the emotional burden of city life and how that needs to change. Uh, so despite having moments in the last 12 months where I wished a phone call would swoop me away to another calling, I have begun to find that the answer for now lies more in the deeper places of my soul. As I might counsel one of you over coffee at Cafe Dantarelle's, this sounds like a gospel issue. And indeed it is. Can I, can I entrust this ministry to God and others and allow my own soul to be fed and re-energized? Um, go read one more short paragraph. This has had many implications for how I have tried to minister differently in the past year. It's been a gift that this is happening while our future elders and deacons are preparing to define their roles. As I deal with fatigue, it just so happens we're planning the new ways the ministry and vision of city life are carried, not just by me, but by elders and deacons and members. The timing couldn't be better, which is encouraging to say the least. I go on to describe how the leadership team has been supportive of me applying for a grant 
that is for sabbatical for not this summer, but the following one. And also some of my explaining how in 2014, some of you are around when um, Lisa and I asked for a, a sabbatical summer of 15 weeks off. And as I look back and see that I was almost busier than ever during that sabbatical, so um, because we were remodeling and traveling to be away from the remodel, and then we were helping with the remodel. So um, it, it just, just to say that it was a really nice gift to not have Sunday duties going on then, but I realize kind of the exhaustion has only continued to build. So, so this idea of a sabbatical is to apply for a grant that would fund activities, but that would all be around rest and restoring of my soul and our families kind of rejuvenating for ministry. So that's, that's kind of what this letter, how this letter kind of closes, also with a, a link to a poll that invites feedback around the idea of a sabbatical happening in 2019. So I just wanted to share this with you in person and invite you to go um, check out the email to read it more maybe, to read the beginning and end of it, and then also the link for the feedback poll. And I, and I also just want to say thank you for, as I've continued to share about this at every level, every person has been extremely encouraging. And um, it's not like I didn't expect that, but it's definitely an unexpected impact on me to be so encouraged and supported by all of you. So with that, we're going to move towards our scripture reading. And Jen, I think you're our reader. Is that right? I have a reading. I have a, <laughs> I have a page up here. And you can take over. Thanks. Uh, today's reading is Acts 4, 32 to 35. It can be found on page uh, 1006 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. The word of the Lord. Uh, bow your heads in prayer. Our God, voice, we pray that you would meet us. Or we might come complacent and feeling quite numb. Wherever we find ourselves, we're all in the same boat in that we need your grace. We are dependent on you um, for walking out of here feeling loved and accepted. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. But in Christ, the story over and over in Scripture tells us that we are more loved and accepted because of your work on our behalf. So we don't climb the mountain to get to you in your, in your love. You have come down home. May that kind of grace speak to us now as we, as we live our lives 
in an often troubled world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, <clears throat> no opening joke today. Just going to jump right in. Um, the leadership team a couple years ago refined and grabbed hold of a statement that we said this is a five-year vision. It probably now needs to transition to something like 10 or 20 because we're already two years in and we're learning things about this vision. Included in it, it goes something like this. Uh, correct me if I get it wrong. It goes something like this. Um, in the next five years, city life will see a noticeable increase in people from diverse backgrounds in Sacramento um, desiring their own spiritual formation because they see gospel credibility in the lives and community of City Life Church, or they see the credibility of the gospel. And one of the things early on as we grabbed hold of, we, we noticed and we felt called to highlight the diverse word in that whole thing, and just to say that a number of us noticed that um, City Life's population doesn't reflect the population of Sacramento, which um, we weren't beating ourselves up over, but we are leaning into a future that the Bible gives of Revelation chapter 7 that pictures all kinds of people who look all different and speak different languages. And we want to lean into that with resurrection power and prayer that if there's a way God could help that happen at City Life, we're all in. Um, and that that might be a hard journey, and it won't be an easy journey. It'll probably be, as we in, in, in increasingly realize, painful and difficult, but we're all in. And so there's one of the things that's ongoing is a dialogue group around this that's been really helpful, as I've been able to sit in on it. Some of you have, too. And um, so the next meeting for that is April 22. That's two Sundays from now. There's, I think it's, they're usually over lunch, and they're usually quite... Um, they fit really well in the time frame that they're meant to fit. In other words, these don't go really long. And I like that Victoria has done a great job of leading those and keeping them from being things that drag on for four hours. Um, it, it makes it something that you're likely to more, more likely to visit. So I preface with that, and then I, say, I want to say that we're in the Easter season, which is a season. And last week was Easter. We talked about the empty tomb, we sang about it, we looked at scripture passages around it, and then now we're going to enter into a series of passages that focus on the post-resurrection uh, community. So the passages that are in the lectionary that we're following are the ones in the book of Acts, which is sort of the early days of the church and the spread of the gospel among new people. And each of these passages we're going to read, including the one today that we're looking at, has somewhere right in the middle of it the, the power of the resurrection and the message of the resurrection. And so you, you, know, you might not even catch it amidst all the other things that's pretty exciting scripture text Jen just read. Pretty unbelievable, really. You might not even notice that right in the midst of it, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It seems that the resurrection was a catalytic force igniting things as the message went. And so in this passage, one of the things you notice is that, and the thing that maybe did jump out at you for sure, was these people were carrying each other's financial burdens. Did you catch that? 
Um, they were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And uh, it says that there, were, that there were no needy persons among them, verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. As an aside, you might have been to a church where they or, or familiar with a book that talks about Christian stewardship of your money and, and deals with things like giving, and you might notice that compared to this, what those books and classes do looks uh, cheap and miserly, right? To, you know, you kind of carefully give this little part over here, and then you also, you know, carefully steward these things and invest and whatever, you know. This is like, psh, here, my retirement. But property was basically your retirement in these days. So this is, these are people liquidating their retirement accounts for the needs of the church. Okay, that's an aside. It could be the whole message. That could, that could be where this whole message goes. Um, because this passage, the need is the financial need of the church. But the same principle is at work with any need that's glaring in the resurrection community, in the Easter community. Any need that's there. And a glaring need that I feel led to consider this passage within this week is the needs... Um, that Sacramento has in it right now and City Life Church has right now related to what, ha what happened to Stephen Clark and the, just kind of the journey that that has been for the last, I think, three, sun three weeks. It was on a Sunday, I think, three weeks ago. And I think that one of the needs is to sit and listen um, I know I need this, and this week I was invited into a room to listen to pastors Black pastors of churches and of the family of Stephen Clark and of the churches in South Sacramento and white pastors were invited in to listen, to find some unity. It was an extremely, it was, it was like, wow, I didn't even realize how much I needed this, needed to, to listen and to sit amidst stories being told. Um, as, and, and I realized how since Stephen Clark was shot and killed, how almost all of my conversations, almost all, were with people who, whose experience is more likely to be described as white, privileged, uh, majority culture. And that the things that I heard from these pastors is they just gave a sense of what is the emotional journey like after this shooting and all the other shootings. Um, what is their emotional journey like? I realize it's very, 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 very different than most of the people I talk to. And there's a way in which I can shut off a switch. I can just kind of turn off. I can say, yeah, I thought about that for a couple hours. And there's all these other people in my life, in our church, and in the city who you can't just switch off. You can't just turn a switch off. In fact, as I, so, all right, I'm going to stick to my notes. <clears throat> Um, so what was happening on, uh, I think it was Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, was that there was enough grace, if you go by this passage, is there enough grace at work in your church that you can enter in and shoulder needs that you wouldn't normally associate as your needs? So there was enough grace at work that a bunch of white pastors were listening and absorbing and starting to care about things. 
Um, and I, you know, and I've, so I've heard since Stephen Clark was shot, I've heard some um, white people say some things uh, that make me realize that um, there's, not, there's not a lot of conversing across those lines. There's not nearly enough relationships across those lines where people actually are understanding and hearing things. And so people don't have loved ones and friends that they care about and that they need to check in with and say, and, and so I'm thinking about this, about how this is sort of like a, a, let's just say a white problem. I'm thinking about this and I stop, and I have this moment of this aha moment and I realize, in a way I'm starting to kind of say, oh, this is, this is what's going on with white people and, and my church is mostly white people. And, um, and then I realize I have people in my church who, thank God, have kind of sacrificially entered into, entered into a community that is not their dominant culture. They've shouldered that burden, and, I, and they've been on a journey these last few weeks, and I haven't checked in on them. I haven't asked them. I haven't listened to them. So almost immediately after listening to these pastors, I called up about six or seven people at City Life, and I said, just how are you doing? Isn't that interesting how simple that is, and yet how I was completely missing that? So that was an aha moment for me, and as I, I even as I even talked to one person, and was just listening and learning even more, and then she said, um, as I told her about this aha moment, and she said, she gave this vision of yeah, in city life, it's good for you to model this because imagine in the future, city life uh, is a church full of people who are picking up the phone and calling people, and saying how are you doing, huh? So she had a bigger vision for it than I did. Okay. So I have some notes here, but I, I, uh, I think we're just. I think I think I've said enough of what I need to say. So if you look at this passage, it says God's grace was powerfully at so powerfully at work within them that they, and then you see them carrying financial burdens that aren't theirs uh, in the community of faith. Because God's grace has just freed you up. You're not clutching things. And so some people in our community, I know a lot of people, white people throughout Sacramento, as they've engaged in conversations, it seems like they're clutching things. Like there's fear, there's insecurity, there's clutching. And so um, we're looking and praying for God's grace at City Life to be powerful enough that we're not clutching, um, and that there's open, safe space for us to hear and begin to build relationships. So I thought today, this passage needs to bear down upon the emotional needs and the journeys of people um, who, even here at City Life, has been rough the last few weeks, and to help us hear them the way I was able to be helped hear things on Wednesday from some other pastors. And so I want to invite Felipe and then after him, Eric, to come up and, and talk. Felipe. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I want to start off by saying that God is good. And that God has a purpose for each and every one that is here today. I know that he had and has a purpose for me. And that purpose is 
to maybe be here right now. After seeing a disturbing video a couple of weeks ago about a young life cut short due to what appeared to be vandalism, made me think on just how awful and senseless this supposedly crime had gone wrong. But I am Stephen Clark. The difference that the crime was in my community made it very close to home. But I want to share a story, two stories. One about a kid that lived in Modesto and about a respected racial family, or I should say a respected biracial family, Mexican-American. She is Mexican-American. He is African-American. The boy turned out to be a pioneer in Spanish television. He turned out to be the youngest TV anchor in Spanish TV. However, the struggles that this kid faced were the same because he was Mexican-American. For you see, we live in a very different world. We may be Americans, but we're also Mexicans. And we have to please two worlds. We have to please our Mexican world and be as perfect as we can be, and we have to fix our American world and be as perfect as you can be. You can be educated, you can be well-versed in the eyes of everyone here, but at the end, what people see out there, you're still just a Mexican. Let me share now about the Davises family, which by the way, Rashawn Davis is a member of the board of Soul Collective here. His wife Maritza has three children. I read one of her posts recently and the post read something like this. Our community is hurting. We are hurting as well. But now we are afraid. Our children, Noah, Parker, and Paxton, are beautiful, smart, educated children who, to us, we see them as our boys. But the way other people see them is they're just black boys. When I read this, it hurt me. It hurt me deeply. For you see, I am that Mexican boy and the Davis family is my family, my daughter and my son-in-law, Noah, Parker, and Paxton are my grandchildren. After telling you the story, I'm not saying it for you to feel sorry or bad about me. There is an agenda here, and the agenda is very simple. The grace of God is alive. 
Each one of us has a purpose. I don't know what your purpose is, but I hope that in the agenda that I bring, which if you could imagine seeds that I am asking you to go and plant. Furthermore, when I got the call from Mark, I heard your pain. Mark, I love you. You're my pastor. But more importantly than that, God has a purpose for you. I want to thank my family. You are my family. And I thank you for that. And I hope that those seeds somehow, somewhere, I challenge you to plant them. Because it's really up to us to make that change. May God bless you all. And I want to say that God is alive. God is good. God has mercy. And more importantly, that I'm embracing God's grace. Because as a sinner, as we all are, we have the ability to look upon God through Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's what's important. Thank you. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric. And um, I was thinking a lot about how to start this off. So I, I guess what's actually striking me the most right now is when I got the call from Pastor Mark to come in and talk about how the situation with Stephon Clark has affected me. Um, I'm not going to lie, it was very awkward um, because it is so unorthodox. Um, I have never had somebody in a church community who didn't look like me ask me how I was doing about an issue like this. So take with that what you will. Um, but it was very, so it was very odd, but I was very intrigued by that proposal that somebody was seriously looking at me. And I think that talking about these kind of issues is the kind of work that I would like to be a part of. And it was very, it made me happy to see that I had found some, some community that is kind of doing that work, um, that is doing that work. So what I'm going to talk a little bit about is just how this situation has affected me. And I will leave it up to Pastor Mark to make a connection with the gospel because that is something that... Um, I feel it's a little out of my <laughs> background. I say that because I am, uh, my, my faith tradition is as a Catholic, and so we have very strong hierarchies, and you know. So, <laughs> so um, that's something I leave generally to people who are much wiser than I am in the areas of God's will and faith. But um, yeah, so beginning first with how I understood this, this incident, um, it's a profound tragedy for somebody like me. And I say that just because um, I grew up being told that by my parents that there are certain things that you can do, certain boxes you can have checked, that if you do this, things like that don't happen to you. Um, if you go to school, you do well in school. If you get a job, if you're a homeowner, if you dress well, if you speak properly, these kinds of things don't tend to visit you in your life. Um, and I believe that, and I think I still hold on to that belief uh, to this day. So I have checked many of those boxes in my life. I am not only a college graduate, I'm a law school graduate, I'm a licensed attorney, I'm a homeowner, I'm a car owner, I don't have any extraneous credit card debts, I speak properly, I dress well generally when I go outside. Um, all of these things 
done with the idea that this will be some kind of, well, there's many reasons why I've done those things, but one of the reasons being that this will be kind of armor in my life that will protect me from things that are out there in the world. Um, and it's incidents like these that remind somebody like me who has checked several of those boxes that I am not far from where Stefan Clark is, that Stefan Clark very easily can be me. I'll give you an example of that. So a couple of months ago, I was walking around in Land Park. I just had got done having lunch with my folks. We were working on the yard, so I was just kind of in jeans and a dirty shirt from yard work. And I um, was walking back to my car, and I happened to notice that there was a yard that had really nicely landscaped area. And so I, I walked over on the sidewalk, and I kind of peeked into their backyard and was checking some of the space out just to get some ideas, because I just got done working on my yard. So I really liked what they did. Wasn't stepping on the property at all. Was totally on public property on the sidewalk when a white truck driven by a white male and his white wife pulls up to me. They look at me and say, are you lost? I said, nope, I know where I am. And then I kept looking at the yard. He says, are, are you sure? Do you know where you are? And I said, yep, I know where I am. And I kept looking at the yard. And then he said, because you don't look like you're from around here. And... I thought back to another incident, another one of these shootings, um, Eric Garner's shooting. Um, there's a moment, and there's a lot that I could say about that, because it's, it's unfortunately become a uh, hobby of mine to look into these shootings when they, when they happen. And um, there's a moment where he turns to the, where Eric Garner turned to the police officer and said, this stops today. Um, and I think back to, what if that had been my response to that gentleman? That I said, this stops today. And I turned to him and said, everything I wanted to say in my heart to him and more. And then we have an altercation and then law enforcement is called. And now they see me fighting with a white gentleman and I look the way I do and he looks the way he does. Am I gonna be perceived a threat because I have something in my hands? Am I gonna be perceived a threat because if I were happen to be winning that physical altercation, am I the one that's threatening now? So. I didn't do that. I did as I was trained by my parents to do, which is the training that every, I think, boy in particular, but every person of color gets from their parents who have a very sincere interest in seeing them live to an adult age, um, is that you act a certain way because this is what you need to do to survive. So with that moment, I let him say what he wanted to say, and I just kept walking down the street towards my car. He drove away situation and ended. And it's seeing something like Stefan Clark that reminds you that it's you're really only one mistake away from death for some of us. Um, Stefan Clark's big mistakes, if you, taking it even in the most generous light to law enforcement, is that he had broken some windows, he hadn't responded to law enforcement direction, and he had a phone in his hands. And for those mistakes, he sacrificed his life. And so for someone like me who has checked some of those boxes, it reminds me that my armor really isn't there. I'm always just a few mistakes away from having sharing his fate. Um, and in that altercation, have I had made those decisions, that could have very well been me. So 
it's a really sad thing to see, but then there's also the part of myself who is an attorney, and I have some training in the law, and I've read some of that, and I encourage you folks to definitely read some of the rules when it comes to this, if you ever have the chance. Um, they're, they're all public record <laughs> documents. Um, but it's, when you read those things, you have some understanding of that. There's a second kind of tragedy that happens because you become very pessimistic about what's gonna happen after this. Um, so there are really long re things to say about this, but the short of it is that there's a lot of rules that protect what law enforcement gets to do in these situations. They're given very broad discretion. And so this, in my personal assessment, there's not a lot of things that really I think is going to happen to the officers. And that's a mixture of my understanding of that, but also my pessimism around this issue because we've all been here before, right? We've all seen people get shot or in the papers and things and, and read into the facts about them. So I feel a certain amount of pessimism there. And the tragedy from that comes from the standardization of death. Right, that we all go along, um, these people die, they look a certain way, and we expect that. Um, then we all move forward. And that's just a part of our world that we've internalized to have the kind of order that we have, one where thugs, gangsters, hoodlum kids die, and others don't. And we look at different things to say that, oh, he didn't, put his hands up when he was told by officers. So therefore he dies and that makes sense. Um, and that's fine for a sense of order for some folks, but then there's folks like me who we know that we bear the burden of that order and that standardization of death. So that's the sort of feelings that I get when I read something like this is it's another brick in the wall, it's another nail in the coffin, and um, finding the, 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 the place where my faith comes in, in my belief in God, is that to retain some level of optimism in this, to believe that there can be change, that there can always be an opportunity to move forward. Um, and the internal turmoil is finding a balance with my intellectual curiosity and understanding on some issues. Um, but through my belief in God as my faith wins out, and I want to thank Pastor Mark for being part of why I have that faith, that things can move forward. So. Uh, I don't know if this is on still. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I don't really leave a spot for you, huh? Thank you guys for sharing. Um, because one thing I've also heard from people is that being invited into spaces of sharing can be a part of continual re-traumatization or opening yourself up. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that you're taking a risk by just being up here and, be, and saying how this is, uh, and that's a sacrifice you're making for the whole community to walk with you and to be a better community. Um, I also want to say if you're, if, as you listen to this, I hope that you are just hearing the humanity of someone's journey. It may not be your journey, but there may be like um, kind of a, a big gap between your journey and, and these journeys. Or you might feel like, yes, brother, I'm with you. But if there's a sense of gap, I would, I would ask you to just continue to be curious and to continue to listen. And I think that the picture of this community in scripture is one where there's a togetherness. 
There, there's a, a much, like that gap increasingly doesn't even look like a gap um, in the lives of people who, whose lives are very different. So I invite you to traverse that gap to make your way towards it. And don't make assumptions. Ask questions. Be curious. Let us pray. God of grace, I thank you for Felipe and Eric for giving um, them, uh, in a sense, giving me the gift of knowing them giving City Life the gift of being able to hear from them today, and giving us most of all a gift of your grace through Jesus Christ that seems to have a curious power that did very countercultural things in the scripture passage we read this morning. And we ask that it continues to do countercultural, amazing things because of its strength here at City Life. May these words not fall lightly on our ears, but may they, as Felipe said, plant seeds. And may you have all kinds of wonderful ways in which you allow us to plant those seeds and to water them and to watch them grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you.